service providers are desperately needed to scale DAOs and efficiently get stuff done, it is an absolute mess. Like if you're really involved in these DAOs on the back end, like it is a shit show. It may not appear in the discords, the telegrams. Honestly, it probably does there, but it's even worse behind the scenes. We really do think like professional service providers need to step in, help get things done. There's so many pain points. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that, like Dan and I, you believe the future of finance is on the blockchain. And we're excited that London is becoming a global hub for blockchain innovation and institutional adoption of digital assets. That's why we're pumped to host the 2024 Digital Asset Summit in London this March. Don't miss your chance to get ahead of the curve. Later in this episode, we'll tell you how you can save 20% off on your ticket. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. Before we dive into today's episode, a quick word from our sponsor, Hexens, the most hardcore security team in Web3, pioneering in ZK and novel cryptography. Hexens is trusted by tier one projects like Polygon, Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, One Inch, New Bank, and more. Check them out on the ground at DevConnect and be sure to mention 0x Research when requesting a quote and you'll get a free Web2 pen test with the purchase of your audit. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of 0x Research. We have an awesome analyst interview lined up for you guys today, but before we dive into it, I want to shout out blockworksresearch.com. You can use 0x Research 10 to get 10% off uh, your your quarterly or annual subscription. So be sure to check that out. We'll drop a link to the show notes or in the show notes so you guys can uh, can navigate to it that way. Today is November 3rd and we are joined by uh, Pibbles, Effort, and Ren. I should actually say I because Dan was unable to make it. Analysts have lives too. So uh, he decided to take a little vacation, much needed. Um, but Pibbles, do you want to uh, take over the, the movers and losers of the week? Yeah, I'll jump right into this. Uh, top winners of the week. Obviously, Soul with the Breakpoint Conference, but then you also saw DeFi 1.0 kind of ripping, and this is mainly due to just how illiquid the perps are, like Comp and Ave and uh, Sushi just trade like literal meme coins on perps. Um, probably some DWF shenanigans going on there. Uh, biggest losers weren't necessarily losers, but I would say the two laggards of the week are usually Maker and ETH. And uh, you can just see that BTC ETH ratio just going, or the ETH BTC ratio going lower and lower. Uh, rates are actually starting to go down a little bit as of today. So I don't know. Maker was like really great as a play in the bear market, but if things are turning around, we're kind of seeing the inverse happen. Another one I want to flag is Arb had like a really nice short lived pump. And I guess this will kind of go into the governance section if you want to talk a little about the ARB staking proposal. Yeah, real quick on the maker front, I'm I'm curious if you guys have any opinions. Do you think it kind of continues to outperform as people go risk on? Because like fundamentally speaking, it's at all time highs, but I feel like people don't really care about fundamentals in a bull market, I guess. <laughs> I think part of that depends on sort of like the term duration of all of their reward asset um, investments. I don't know how long those are, but I know most of their like um, U.S. Treasury investments are pretty short term. If I'm not wrong, they have to be shorter than six months. Whereas for their reward asset investments, perhaps those are like locked in for a longer period of time, say two to three years. So it's probably like less sensitive to interest rate changes, such as like the dovish pause that we saw earlier this week. Um, but I think going to a bull market, I don't think rates come down that quickly. Like fundamentally, makers should still be making like a buttload of money. Um, but yeah, uh, 
it probably like underperforms like BTC, ETH, and say maybe Solana in the next bull, but it won't like underperform too much in my opinion. Yeah, I think the the rolled asset narrative obviously kind of created like a a fundamental floor, and you saw like what five six hundred dollars kept getting descended, uh, and Maker really outperformed for most of Q one and Q two, and I think Maker's pretty much like probably has the lowest correlation to the rest of the crypto market at large at this point uh, because of how gravity it is in, in the real world, uh, like treasury yields. But I think it's probably going to underperform until you start seeing Spark Protocol uh, do its airdrop. And maybe you see other protocols that are building around like this Maker Endgame. Um, if you start seeing other airdrops to other protocols that are leveraging MakerDAO's liquidity, that's when I think you're going to start seeing it outperform again when there's like that narrative's back here and now it's kind of uh, like a hyper-speculative bull market. Um, that's where I think it could really start ripping. Uh, I think the chart list still looks great. Like TA is mostly uh, what astrology for men, but uh, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but I still think the chart looks pretty decent. And and once you see Spark Protocol, I think do its airdrops when you see Maker outperform again. I could also see the whole, um, I guess just Maker Endgame, you know, Rune like brought up the idea of forking the Solana code base. Like with how good Solana has been performing, I could see that being a huge tailwind in terms of momentum. But I'm putting you guys on the spot here. But there was a little debacle with uh, the PSM and the amount of USDC in there, and there was some like stuff that needed to be done. Is anyone caught up to speed on that and able to explain what happened there? Yeah. So basically, the PSM has a minimum balance of USDC, but in fact, it's PSM and the two GUNI pools, and there's been like a lot of withdrawals and over the weekend basically once it goes below that 300 million threshold one individual is meant to reach out to basically the custodian in charge of sort of like the coinbase custody account and say hey um uscc is running low in the psm i'm gonna need you to withdraw from our coinbase custody reward asset account and to top up the psm but like it's one guy commenting on the forum and it also relies on the custodian SHRM to also go look at the forum. And I think he reached out on Sunday and uh, I think Sunday and I guess they don't work weekend. So, you know, by the time the custodian like initiated the transaction to top it up by 250 million USDC, like the total amount of USDC in the PSM and the 2G Unipools had dropped, I think below 100 million USDC if I'm not wrong, which is like, pretty dangerous you know i don't think there's any like solvency risk to like uh die it's just like a temporary lack of like one-to-one liquidity to solve between uscc and die um but the process is like definitely outdated for sure and if i understand correctly the main risk would be the psm getting drained and then people needing to buy back die on the market similar to what happened in 2020 and then die depegs the upside and it doesn't get our back. So then paying back the debt is more expensive. Is that like the primary concern here? Yeah, I think that'd be the primary concern. Okay, got it, got it. Okay, awesome. Well, I appreciate that, Ren. Thanks. What's up, everyone? As we explore today's blockchain landscape, let's take a moment to recognize Hexens, the premier cybersecurity provider in Web3. Hexens is trusted by Tier 1 projects like Polygon, including a security review of the new Polygon ZK EVM, Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, OneInch, NewBank, and more. Get a deep dive into your technology stack with the most comprehensive analysis in cybersecurity consulting. With over $55 billion secured, they cover everything from smart contracts to blockchain to Web2 pen tests. There has been nearly $7 
$7 billion of total value hacked in crypto's nascent history. So it's safe to say that your team has a lot on the line. Don't skip out, take your security seriously, and choose Hexens. Don't forget to mention 0x Research for a free Web2 pen test with your partnership. And you can reach out to Hexens at hexens.io or find them on the ground at DevConnect. Without further ado, let's get back to today's episode. Over to some governance updates. Uh, back to talking about Arbitrum staking. I know we talked about this last week, but I did kind of change my view on this just as a little recap. There is a proposal live to activate uh, staking of ARB, and it would be anywhere from 100 to 175 million of incentives over the next 12 months for people who lock their tokens from anywhere from um, a couple weeks to a year, I believe it is. Um, I was originally really against this, but at the same time, I thought about it. I don't think it's perfect, but at the same time, the ARB token needs utility. Uh, it'd be a nice supply sink for ARB at the same time that there's going to be some stip inflation with the 50 million ARB allocation to the different protocols over the next three months. And there's already like a billion uh, tokens, over a billion tokens of ARB in users' hands. So it's really just like a 10% inflation rate on the circulating supply uh, effort. I know you and I were kind of originally on the side of, I feel like this is dumb, but I've kind of changed my view and I'm like, all right, it's not perfect, but I think it's a good interim solution for now. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think it makes things a lot more fair for public market participants in ARB. Um, Just like you have different funds who got in private rounds and like obviously they're waiting for their cliff to end and then they can start investing. But in the meantime, the, the average public investor or airdrop recipient can sit there and get ahead of that curve a little bit. Not that it's like super material or anything, but like, I like the notion. I think in conjunction with the steps that are being released, like a good supply sink is always like net bullish, I would say. Obviously, like I know Kobe wrote this whole thread about how like staking is not really staking. if You're not really putting collateral at risk for anything. We had a whole internal debate about this uh, as a group, but I think, you know, it, it does create some artificial supply sink for our, our token for now. Uh, obviously, I'm sure there's going to be an, an additional like real supply sink over time when uh, it starts distributing some of the sequencer revenue to ARB stakers. So, you know, it, it, I don't think it's like a material difference, uh, but, you know, um, it's it's not a bad luck to, to again, create a supply sink and also distribute uh, additional ARB and give, you know, inflation is essentially a tax on, on non-stakers at this point. So um, it is a good way for retail holders that want to put up that capital to get additional like ownership in the protocol yep agreed agreed i think that vote too it's friday right now so we're recording usually we record on monday so this will come out wednesday so that vote will have concluded but right now the option to fund it with 175 million arb is winning uh which is the highest allocation possible but be sure to check snapshot to uh stay up to date on that one we can probably link to that in the uh description so you can find it easily but on to the next one we've got uh ribbon to avo uh token migration slash rebrand i guess i'm not really sure exactly the the mechanics but essentially ribbon rebranded to avo and it needs a new governance token and it's supposed to launch no later than january 2024 so i think this is a good one to flag early on and uh to to pay close attention to basically 25 percent of revenue from the options vaults and the exchange will go to an insurance fund and then the other 75 percent will go to covering operating expenses for the developers until $5 million has accrued each year. And then after that, it kind of has the same exact mechanism as Maker with the the smart engine burn so that it'll build up protocol and liquidity by buying uh, AVO from the USDC pool and then, you know, therefore reduce the circulating supply. 
I really like this proposal. I think it's great. I just don't know how much revenue uh, Avo actually makes. Like it could be a very, very long time before five million dollars accrues. Maybe one of you has a a better idea on this, but nevertheless, I, I think the uh, the smart burn engine is a, a great mechanism and a good way to return value back to token holders. I don't have a good idea of how much money Avo is making right now, but they, uh, I feel like they. They they've definitely they've definitely been shipping. I think they've recently launched like cross margin capability for Avo. Um, they've obviously been sort of keeping track of like pre launch futures for any large airdrops, for example. Um, so that's just airdrop you can trade that on the exchange. And in the previous month, they've integrated ribbon option vaults into Avo itself. Um, so whenever like the option vaults are selling the calls or the puts, like that flow is being passed through Avo instead of like what used to be sort of like this like off-chain RFQ type of mechanism that was manipulated slightly, but then eventually they did manage to address that uh, by integrating a paradigm. I think one key thing I think about in terms of Avo is will people still value it as like an options vault sort of token or just the wider exchange? Because I have a feeling that option vaults don't do as well um, as they did as the previous bull run. I think that was a very like, just retail had no clue what they were doing. They were just aping into it for some like fancy APYs. Um, whereas this cycle, like chances are like you're a bit more sophisticated. Um, chances are we learn a bit more from the past cycle and the vaults just don't see the same amount of like TVO growth that they saw last cycle. Yeah, I just pulled up Avo's stats and it's looking like it's right under 10 mil TVL, but like 24 hour, 24 hour volume was like 11 mil. Um, and then their biggest day they had was, I think last month it was like 40 mil, but it looks like it's averaging like probably eight, nine mil, 24 hour volume and USDM flows are on the up and up. I mean, it's still an expensive ass token in my opinion for what it is, but like good for them for being ahead of the old app specific rollup narrative. So just this is the first time I'm really hearing this proposal. I didn't really do a deep dive. So kind of off the cuff, but this is options vault revenue and their perps exchange revenue, right? Just to clarify. Yeah, that's right. So right now I just pulled up token terminal, uh, shout token terminal. Uh, they, they have pretty good data. So their annualized revenue right now is $330,000. So $5 million at current pace, you're not seeing $5 million for <laughs> over a decade. Uh, token holders will not wait that long. We're way too impatient of a, of a population. But uh, you'd have to imagine, I, I've seen a lot of good uh, people talk uh, highly of their perps exchange. Um, obviously, we're still in like the depths of the bear market, regardless of Bitcoin and soul ripping. Like most crypto pro- protocols aren't really seeing like all-time highs in terms of users and volume or what have you. I'd have to assume that revenue goes up staggeringly over over the next cycle um maybe you see five million dollars in in revenue in year one uh and then that flips on that fee switch to token holders and to uh buying back ribbon or, or avo token uh and doing you know leveraging pol to create like a deeper moat of liquidity for uh like a uni v3 uni v2 pool so i like this proposal um pretty bullish on the ribbon team overall the token is probably a little overvalued today to your point sets uh pips but um, I like this idea. I like like taking the smart burn engine protocol like thesis that makers doing with their own token. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I'm for this proposal. Unfortunately, that value cool doesn't sound like it's coming anytime soon, but we can keep a close eye on it nonetheless. <laughs> um, on to another one. We got a Uniswap proposal from Duwan Nam. <laughs> Crazy name, but 
to delegate up to 12 and a half million uni from the treasury to underrepresented delegates who have shown like to be very active in value add. Not a whole lot to say on this, honestly. Uh, I think this is a fantastic idea and I'm surprised more protocols don't do this. Like, I feel like this is a great way of balancing uh, delegation power amongst different people. It's cool, but like when fee switch for delegates? When do delegates start to get paid for their contribution to the protocol? And it's not like it matters. Let's let's be honest, right? Like Jesse Walden from Variates and a couple other whales will still decide ultimately what Uniswap governance does. It's mostly a farce today. Not to be pessimist, like I think it's a great idea, but will it actually change anything with Uniswap governance? Probably not. It'll be a public good, and you'll be happy with that for life. I'll take the opposite of that. I think the uh, the program to get active but underrepresented delegates to get more voting power, like could be the start of like the turning stone of fixing uni governance and do with stable labs is like he's really great active in governance and a lot of things so uh i'm excited to see this program kick off and see how we as a team can step in there and help out yeah i agree with that and also we are uni delegates so consider us uh if you're looking to delegate and speaking of that actually we have a new vote live on uh the Arbitrum snapshot, which is the Arbitrum coalition vote. Um, I guess like the TLDR is it's three groups. There is Blockworks Research, us, and then so us, Blockworks Research, and then Trail of Bits and Gauntlet. We just kind of think that service providers are desperately needed to scale DAOs and efficiently get stuff done. It is an absolute mess. Like if you're really involved in these DAOs on the back end, like it is a shit show. It may not appear in the discords, the telegrams. Honestly, it probably does there, but it's even worse behind the scenes. We really do think like professional service providers need to step in, help get things done. There's so many pain points. Just for an example, we just reviewed over 100 stiffs proposals, made a spreadsheet so the community could track it. And there's no expectation of getting paid or anything. Like we're just trying, we've been there since day one. Like you can go back, dig up some of the BlockWorks research threads when the DAO had been established, made some fun movement before we believed that, you know, the DAO could actually vote on those things. They did it kind of, I guess, before they should have. And we kind of rectified that situation. And uh, yeah, I'm kind of rambling at this point, but basically what I'm saying is I think that we definitely need service providers to provide really high value services like auditing, research, delegate education, um, and, and things of that sort. So definitely consider voting for that proposal. Yes, no, comment on the forum if you'd like, uh, but we would love your support and happy to answer any questions if you have any. Um, does anyone else on the team have something to add there? Yeah, I would just uh, come to add and say, I think Arbitrum DAO is one of the most engaged and involved DAOs out there, to be honest, in the entirety of crypto. Uh, to be very honest, there's a lot of high quality proposals out there. There's a lot of involved delegates and a lot of active discussion on the forums, but sort of execution around the proposals is always a problem, especially given how many different stakeholders there are involved, right? Um, there, there's a very long process from going to proposal to actually voting on it and then to actually implementing it. And just having someone there to facilitate all of that, whether that's risk assessment, research, coordination, creating like objective voting frameworks, you know, for example, in the Arbitrum SIP proposal, I'm sure every delegate tried to create their own framework um, for like the 100 plus SIP proposals, or maybe you didn't. Um, and I wouldn't be too surprised if like over all of the delegates and stakeholders, more than say 2,000, 3,000 man hours was lost, right? 
And so our job is to basically come in here and make that a lot more efficient for everyone. But I want to just emphasize that what we're doing is just providing objective frameworks and research. Um, the Arbitrum Coalition won't be like the be all and say all. We're not suddenly going to become the voice of the DAO. We're just helping provide tools to basically speed up all of the governance process. But every delegate and every token holder will still be able to maintain their independent voting power and basically come to their own decisions independently of us. We are just providing frameworks so that you make a more informed decision that probably benefits the DAO more as a whole and results in a more effective allocation of resources in the long term. And just to add to that, because other DAOs are also going through this exact same, like similar idea or where you have subject matter experts that are, are SMEs in their certain vertical. Um, how do you onboard them? How do you actually make sure that they're working on behalf of the DAO and people that are some, some people that are against this, this concept because they believe like DAOs are supposed to be like inherently decentralized. You shouldn't have professional centralized entities that are like, I don't want to say running the show, but kind of making decisions on behalf of the larger community. I, I think what's important is like this idea of optimistic governance. Let these SMEs do what they have to do. If you don't feel like as a DAO that your voice is being heard, you always have the option to remove and replace that service provider. As long as that, uh, as long as we don't cross that threshold, that like we're we're stopping the ability for the DAO as a whole to veto, remove, replace, pull funds, what have you from a service provider. Um, I, I think like this is what the future of DAO governance looks like, at least for the foreseeable future until we get to a point where we have the tool AI capabilities to actually like do true decentralized coordination and make effective decisions like capital allocation, what have you. We're just fact of the matter is we're not there yet. And DAO, just like L2Z training wheels with centralized sequencers, I would argue DAOs need to see uh, training wheels, which is like this, this decentralized group of like service providers uh, that really work on behalf of the DAO. Yeah, you guys killed that. I uh, I definitely botched it in comparison to you guys, but I think that's very well said. And this is like a very fluid body. You know, it's supposed to, you know, aid the DAO. And we're going to learn so much through this experience that hopefully we can bring to other DAOs and maybe other people can take this framework as well and apply it to their own DAO. So very excited to see what comes out of it and hoping it gets passed. So definitely be sure to vote for that one. But uh, don't want to take up too much time on that. Let's head over to the hot seat, cool throne. Uh, Ren, do you want to kick it off? Yeah, sure. Um, I got Coinbase in the hot seat this week. Uh, I wouldn't say it's like too much of a hot seat. It's probably like in in between hot seat and cool throne. Um, so Coinbase announced their Q3 uh, earnings after market yesterday. It was uh, pretty much average, like as expected. I don't think anything surprised anyone that much. Transaction revenue was down 12% quarter on quarter on the back of trading volume being down 17% quarter on quarter. So transaction revenue came in at 289 million um, institutional transaction revenue was down 18% quarter on quarter. Uh, basically, all everything like trading and volume related was down um, a decently significant amount. However, subscription and services revenue was down a lot less. Right, um, There were a lot of things that were like relatively down, for example, interest income, blockchain rewards, custodial fee revenue. But one sort of outlier there was other subscription and service revenue was up 10% quarter on quarter. And that was driven by higher Coinbase One revenue. Coinbase One is sort of Coinbase's like sort of VIP subscription service. You get like lower trading fees. You get a bunch of like subscriptions. I think there's like a lifestyle product subscription mixed in there somewhere. And also growth in their prime financing product. And this is actually the first time in Coinbase's history that non-commissioned revenues have exceeded commission-based revenues, right? Um, so obviously Coinbase is sort of milking its retail user base 
for whatever spread they're willing to pay. If I'm not wrong, it's something pretty ridiculous. It's like 1.5 percentage points, not basis points of today. So they're making a lot of transaction revenue on retail users. But that's not going to be the case forever, right? Um, stock broker just had their moment where commissions went from, say, like $4.99 to a trade, uh, on a trade to $0. And all it took was Robin Hood to make that first move and every single other stock brokerage follow suit. I think something similar happens to Coinbase sooner or later or crypto as a whole, to be honest. Um, so it's quite encouraging seeing that Coinbase is sort of solidifying or strengthening their subscription and services revenue. And I think they know that that's probably the path that they're going to have to take. And then there's a bunch of like other growth drivers too for Coinbase over the next few years. USDC, where they had their announcement that they sort of had like a new joint partnership with Circle earlier in August, I want to say. Um, obviously, they have just staking business and now with Base, they're out too. Uh, I'll stop there um, and I'll let other people sort of comment on how their earnings went. The main thing that stuck out to me was interest income being down. I know USDC market cap has been down only, but that was just surprising to me after the partnership with Circle. So I'd like to know more about that. Not saying you you do off the top of your head, Ren, but I would be intrigued. Um, and I also saw some people talking about on Twitter how they raised uh, retail fees to from like one and a half percent to two and a half percent effective for the next quarter and, and for the foreseeable future. So I think I have that right, but correct me if I'm wrong, but that was also surprising. But I think you should see an uptick in trading fee revenue, assuming flat volume, if that is the case. I mean, I don't think retail goes to Coinbase really caring about what fee they pay, to be quite honest. So I think it's a good move for now, a nice little Band-Aid. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's just funny. Everyone's talking about Coinbase now on, on crypto Twitter. You'd honestly think based on the amount of open interest on call options that all of crypto Twitter has the ability to pretty much buy all the shares of Coinbase <laughs> if if they were exercised. Um, but yeah, nevertheless, uh, effort, I'm sure you've got some thoughts here. Yeah, I think I, I could be wrong um, about the the swap fee or their, their effective fee on retail. So there's two different ways you can trade on Coinbase. There's Coinbase Advance and then it's like the normal swap fee. Uh, I'm sorry, their, their normal like swap interface. Uh, like the the retail trade option. So I think what happens is like if more users use advanced trade, which has like a lower fee uh, take rate, that's where you see like that effective rate change. I don't think they actually increase their rates on customers. I could be wrong though, uh, but I think it's just based on the the mix of user um, based on how they're they're swapping. Um, the the next thing I was gonna say is, you know, obviously I know a lot of people make fun of like adjusted EBITDA. Their overall like their their net loss was the lowest it's been over the past year plus. Their dusty EBITDA was still positive for for the uh, the quarter, um, and and the fact of the matter is, like we saw the lowest volatility in, in Q2 and Q3 uh, that we've seen, you know, throughout throughout the I don't know past four or five ish years in, in crypto. Um, they barely had to really touch their their cash on hand. Um, they're in a really good spot. Like if you believe that the next cycle is is coming, if you you know if you think 2024 2025 is going to be better than 2022 and 2023, I'd have to imagine that they uh, turn like an actual profit uh, in the upcoming cycle and not just like adjust the EBITDA. Um, I, I, one thing I thought was also interesting to note is that they plan on increasing their marketing spend in Q4 compared to Q3 and Q2, and I believe Q1 as well. And I wonder if that's because they're trying to time the upcoming full cycle by marketing more in Q4 and then potentially like the the major run up of uh, the next cycle starting in sometime Q1, Q2 of 2024. So um, I think they're in a good spot. Unless crypto 
unless the bottom falls out and we actually reach like a, a lower low, which I don't think is going to happen, knock on wood, who knows. But uh, unless you see like complete lack of volatility over the foreseeable future, um, Coinbase is kind of operating in neutral territory right now. Um, and there's only bullish cattle hitting on the horizon. You can argue that the custody fees could drop in the event of a Bitcoin spot ETF. That is very true, but I think custodial fees are like less than 10% of their overall revenue. Um, and obviously like regulatory clarity, I think it's going to be bullish. Uh, I would love for them to potentially like become a bank of sorts because they kind of are like a neo bank. So there's like idea, there's ways that they can generate additional revenue through free hypothecation. Eventually if we have the proper regulatory framework to do that. Um, you know, I, I think overall Coinbase is like the first real fintech company we've ever seen. Um, they're building their entire backend based on these new financial rails. Other fintech companies like PayPal, Square, what have you, like they aren't really fintech. They're really just nice GUIs on top, slapped on top of like the old financial rails. If you're bullish crypto and bullish like this decentralized public like networks, like I don't know how you are bullish Coinbase. It's my personal take. Um, we'll see if it, it ends up playing well, out well. So far, it, it has played out well uh, for me personally this year. I actually checked in on uh, the perps volume as well uh, the other day, just looking at past 24-hour volume because that just launched like two weeks ago, and they had two bill in 24-hour uh, volume. So, I mean, global that day was probably around $150 billion, so that's not that much. But I do think people are underestimating the pricing power of Coinbase on their perps offering. I think they're going to be able to charge higher fees and still capture market share because of the fact that it's so well capitalized and transparent and people like know really who the counterparty is. I would expect that market share to climb up to 10% by the end of next year, but we'll see. Yeah, I also chime in here to add that. I, I think there's like three main growth drivers for Coinbase over the next few years. The first is international expansion. I think Binance has been completely getting pummeled over the past year, just getting shut down in um, sort of territory after territory. So the international growth is really important there. The second thing is the derivatives and the U.S. futures expansion. Like, for example, we saw, right, in the last week, CME became the largest Bitcoin futures exchange. And I think the demand from institutions is definitely there to trade on a relatively safe venue. Um, I think at one point, CME had $3.5 in open interest versus Binance, which had $3.8 in open interest. So, like, the gap isn't that far. And Coinbase just allowed or just open up US futures in several key markets, even in New York, which has like really, really strict regulations when it comes to like digital asset exchanges. And the last one is USDC. Um, USDC supply has gone down even more in the past few weeks. I think just in the past month, it's gone down from like 26 billion to 24.5 billion. I don't know where the bottom is. I think the only saving grace for USDC is sort of institutional adoption in the sense of, for example, very Web2 or by companies using USDC, for example, SAP using USDC for sort of like cross-border payments. I think that's probably going to be one of the larger growth drivers for USDC supply and sort of interest income there. But yeah, I think the narrative is the same and, and it does feel like Coinbase is becoming a very consensus trade on CG. Yeah, we'll see how it pans out. Um, I know our our livelihoods depend on it. <laughs> All right, Zero X Research listeners, we're calling on you to join us for the premier institutional crypto conference in Europe's crypto capital, London, this March 2024. You're going to get to hear exclusive insights from industry trailblazers on things like leveraging DeFi protocols for institutional yield, 
tokenizing real-world assets with instant settlement, navigating the evolving global regulatory landscape, integrating digital assets into banking and payments, or crafting institutional investment mandates with digital assets as the key focus. We'll also be featuring some big keynote speakers, including Melvin Dang, the CEO at QCP Capital, Mark Yusko, the CEO and managing partner of Morgan Creek Capital, and Sonny Kluchin, the founder and CEO of Ave Companies. This is not an event you're going to want to miss. Seats are limited, so be sure to register today by hitting the link in the description and using promo code 0x20 to save 20% on your tickets. See you in London, the land of tasty pastries, and be sure to hit up Dan and I for a beer. Pitbulls, who you got in the hot seat or cool throne? Yeah, so I've got Prisma Finance. All my homies hate Prisma. Um, So a lot of people were farming this for like the past two months. It's the Convex founders. They came out and just forked liquidity, but they claim it's innovation because you can vote lock Prisma tokens to allocate rewards to gauges and different liquid staked ETH collateral. Um, So they launched the token uh, two days ago and all the people who were farming points still haven't received their tokens. Instead, they instantly turned on Prisma rewards for anyone who wanted to come deposit into the farm. Um, As a result, Justin's son hopped in and threw like 110 mil in there, minted like 60 mil of MKUSD stablecoin. And he's just been like insta dumping his Prisma rewards. And like early supporters haven't gotten their airdrop yet. And the the Prisma rewards, like the APYs are really high across the board. But the rewards are locked for, I think, like 24 months or something. But you can take a 50% haircut if you want to insta vest those and dump those. So I've seen like obviously Justin Sun is nuking the token and then like DCF's in there as well, also nuking the token and like all the people who supported it and like really helped pump up the numbers in the early days, they are just kind of really getting screwed here. So this is the second time a points program has treated me really wrong. Uh, First one being EtherFi when uh, the points ended up being useless, like you can get like a t-shirt or something with those. So uh, I'm pretty much like team, I hate points. I hate them so much. It's the worst thing to ever happen to DeFi. Um, Another thing I want to flag about Prisma is if people can just keep nuking their Prisma rewards, then the yields are going to go down a lot, which might like incentivize people to just get the hell out of Prisma and then MKUSD can start depegging and it can end up just like go did. And I think we might see that like speed run. Cause like, I mean, first of all, there's no demand for something like this. We don't need 10 liquidity forks all doing the same thing. Um, so it's going to be really fun to watch how this goes on. I mean, they have 300 mil TVL right now, and it's mainly just like the DeFi cartel and the token is just down tremendously. You got duped. That that is absolute shit. I didn't realize the extent of the situation. That is crazy. I agree with you. Screw point systems. I love the Solana, like all the builders over there, but all of them are embracing this point system. And there's no there's no surprise as to why they are. They have to promise you nothing. They're just giving you imaginary points on the screen, not telling you what it's worth. So I am very much in camp. Screw points. Yeah, just um, one last point. I think when I checked Fizzbo and CoinGecko, like. The market cap was like five million, while the FDV was like 
three billion. I think that's just so so disgusting. And another thing that I think a lot of people are figuring out for these like sort of effect stable coins or sort of like protocol specific stable coins are that you need some reason for there to be intrinsic demand for the stable coin. If there's no intrinsic demand for the stable coin, then it's just not very sustainable. You know, you have like defects to the downside or you have like people mass redeeming at once or you sort of have these like death spirals without that intrinsic demand. That's why I think overall, like all of these like liquidity forks or like EFAX stable coins are hard to sustain, to be honest, just because there's no like intrinsic, like quote unquote real yield that isn't just generated from printing like native governance tokens. Or at least, for example, like Athena, I think that's one sort of effect stablecoin that will perform relatively well in terms of market cap growth just because there's sort of like inherent yield being generated from both like the underlying staking of ETH, but also from like the short per position that they use to Delta hedge um, because that's like quote unquote real yield that's being generated from somewhere. Maybe it's not sustainable, maybe it's not scalable, but at least like the real is quote unquote real. All good points. I agree. I mean, you need to have a reason to hold a stable coin. You're not just going to buy it just to hold it for fun. Ever, <laughs> uh, here you got the hot seat of Cold Throne. Yeah, we'll start off another hot seat. So I have Osmosis and like the overall Cosmos like stack on the hot seat today. A surprising company to me, I guess. Uh, so Osmosis went down. Down is probably not the right term, but pretty much got DDoSed twice this, this week. So uh, Celestia's airdrop happened on Tuesday, probably the largest airdrop that's been anticipated for probably this entire cycle. I, I'd argue like Celestia's supposed to be like the next kingmaker uh, and potentially compete with Ethereum in terms of like the data as a data availability solution. So it was like this big planned airdrop. Uh, they're leveraging the Cosmos stack to build Celestia. So it's supposed to be like a big win for the Cosmos ecosystem. People got airdropped from L2 ecosystems, obviously mainnet, uh, obviously Cosmos users also got airdropped. So it was supposed to be like this really grand event that I thought was going to bring, bring in a lot of trade volume for Osmosis, a lot of liquidity, what have you. A lot of like Ethereum users to come on and, and trade on Osmosis because that's where Tia was initially going to be uh, launching. Um, and what ended up happening was because so much volume happened on Osmosis, uh, it ended up like becoming unusable. Uh, so I got airdropped Tia. I tried to IBC it over Cosmosis to start trading or, or selling it or even provide liquidity in the first hour. That was my game plan. I wasn't able to. It took me over two hours to actually IBC my Tia over. By that time, it really wasn't worth it to LP in my opinion. Um, and I think just the the amount of usage, and it wasn't even that much usage, like to call spade a spade, right? Like if you look at DeFi Llama, I think the day that Tia airdropped, um, Osmosis got more volume than Orca on Solana, but like, was in the top 10 decks by 24 hour volume and osmosis still went down um and to add insult to injury uh in addition like there was a random pump on osmo uh, osmosis token on binance uh, and and uh coinbase so osmosis pumped like a hundred percent on coinbase and binance uh yesterday i believe on, on thursday november 2nd and there was about a five minute lag between the pump on the centralized exchanges and uh, on Osmosis, the, it, its own decks. And within that five-minute period, I guess arbitrage bots tried to DDoS the, the network to try to close that arbitrage. It made Osmosis completely unusable. Um, arbitrage bots were uh, bidding up Osmo to try to close the ARP, uh, or, and nobody could sell. And I think because of correlation bots that are 
looking at the correlation between other Cosmos chains because Osmosis was getting bid up uh, to to close the ARB. Um, other assets like uh, Mars token, Axelar, Sommelier were up like 20 to 25% chasing Osmosis, which went up like 35% on on uh, Osmosis Dex, even though it was up like 100% on Binance and Coinbase. Um, and because of all these arbitrage bots, again, nobody could sell, nobody could transfer anything. The e- chain, the ecosystem, or I'm sorry, the DEX itself came completely unusable. Um, and also what this comes down to is like, there's a fundamental issue with the P2P and the mempool layer with like how uh, it pretty, pretty much becomes like a priority gas auction. Uh, every single bot just throws, uh, you know, tries to DDoS network to be first in line to close the ARP. Um, and I, my understanding is that just last night, after six hours, after all this went down, Osmosis created like a patch uh, for validators to create like a mempool filter to filter out certain arbitrage bots and certain addresses that I think were causing a lot of this, uh, these issues. But um, there's supposed to be like a network upgrade to include something called Block SDK, which kind of creates like swim lanes within the mempool. Uh, so you can actually start to like partition out like top of block auctions versus bottom of block auctions, etc. But long story short, like this was supposed to be a really big week for Osmosis and the wider Cosmos ecosystem. We kind of fell flat on our face. Uh, the, the wider ecosystem has been talking about for a while how like IBC's gotten better and, and overall abstraction of this multi-chain network, how Osmosis and the wider Cosmos SDK was like ready for, for big time. Uh, and Osmosis couldn't even get above like 10 TPS and it was just completely like unusable. Uh, so unfortunately, this kind of fell on our face here. Uh, wasn't a good look. Um, Devs are working to build to fix this. I'm even hearing of a rumor that there's an upcoming new client for Comet BFT, uh, which is the consensus mechanism that's built on top of Cosmos SDK, uh, or the Cosmos SDK is built on top of. That's going to kind of mimic Fire Dancer from Solana. So it's going to leverage Turbine. It's going to leverage Gulfstream uh, and kind of fix a lot of the P2P and mempool issues that the Comet that Comet BFT currently has. So that's supposedly like been in stealth mode this entire year. I think it's going live in the next few weeks, at least on testnet or, or uh, yeah, I'm sure on testnet. Um, but yeah, I mean, overall playing the cosmos and the entire cosmos has to get my hot seat for this week. Damn. That was a very good recap of everything that happened. I did not realize the extent of the issues. And honestly, I just feel really bad for the cosmos folks. Cause I completely agree with you. Like I was excited for you guys to kind of have your, time in the limelight and it seems you know nothing nothing can go right ever since that USTD peg like that's just how it feels funny story there's actually a rumor going on right now like internally in the cosmos like chats that this exact mempool issue is what led to the USTD peg that somebody purposely pulled the liquidity from curve uh i think correct me if i'm wrong right somebody pulled liquidity from curve and like the four pool and then, uh, or I, yeah, I guess one of the UST main pools on Curve. And then that's really when you start seeing UST DPEG. And typically you're supposed to try to, um, the, the I guess the, the way that Luna work right now is like escaping me, uh, sadly. But um, I guess somebody also spammed the mempool on Luna at the same time. And that this issue might've actually caused the, the DPEG of UST to the point where it couldn't be recoverable. So it's like a rumor going on internally. Don't know how like, factual that is but really interesting nonetheless that is interesting and also just to lay it out for the audience effort capital did not actually claim a tia airdrop he's just using a hypothetical example because he is a u.s-based investor <laughs> yes uh pibbles you got for the uh i think you got a couple cool throws why don't you just rattle them both off 
Yeah, so it's mainly just the all L1s. Solana, Avalanche, and Nier all did super well the past two weeks. Well, ETH was in the toilet. Not really in the toilet. It was just like floating on toilet water. Um, Solana obviously had breakpoint this past week. There was a lot of really exciting things that got announced. Like first, my most exciting piece is just uh, Jupiter, the leading DEX aggregator is there dropping like 40% of its JUP token to users. Uh, they also launched a Perps product and they're going to do something. It's like JLP. It's kind of like a GMX's model. And then like Drift is going to integrate that as well. We saw a couple of consumer facing apps that were um, really showcasing at Breakpoint. And we also saw Fire Dancer on Testnet. And then like, of course you saw Soul's price just like absolutely ripping the past two weeks. It's like people just genuinely didn't know this stuff was going on. And it was probably because they don't subscribe to BlockWorks Research because we talked about this last December. And in February, like people just don't read, I guess. Um, so yeah, Solana, major cool throne. Like lots of great things happening there. Um, one thing that will be interesting is whether it can sustain this pump. Or if like, so that was it getting repriced for all the fundamentals that have been there the whole time. But now we have like the FTX estate, which is constantly unstaking Sol and then sending little clips to centralized exchanges. So we have some pretty constant sell pressure over the coming months. So that'll be interesting. And I think there is a cap of like how much they can liquidate per week. I'd have to like go find the docs for that. Um, also piggybacking off of Solana, I talked about near near. I also just wrote a report about, uh, like two or three weeks ago, they have this Kai Kai app and it just, it's up only mode. Like there are so many users of Kai Kai, like it's probably like the most adopted app in crypto. And the best part is like, no one knows it's crypto. So they have NearCon coming up this next week. By the time this podcast is live, NearCon will have been going on. Expecting to see some more like Web2 partnerships and some more stuff about like AI integrations. So, yeah, those are my two cool threads. Yeah, um, just a few points there. I think the Jupiter airdrop is fantastic. It's probably one of the leading like liquidity and swap aggregators on Solana. And the fact that they're airdropping 40% of the community is pretty good. Um, that's in comparison to, for example, Celestia, who airdropped 6%. And Tiff, who also airdropped 6%. But however, I do want to like emphasize that I don't think there's anything wrong with Tiff and um, Celestia airdropping 6% to the community or specifically like just the DGENs. Um, their target audience that will basically help them win in the long term isn't the DGENs. It's probably more so like infrastructure developers, modular blockchain devs, devs themselves, blockchain ecosystems. So they really shouldn't be trying to target DGENs with like airdrop anyway as that's not their core user base um, so I just wanted to put that out there and another thing that Jupiter is doing is they're launching SUSD which is this leverage so staking back stablecoin um, off the top of my head my knee-jerk reaction was I'm not sure whether that's such a great idea especially considering on-chain liquidity for so or so stake derivatives isn't exactly that high at the moment and you know margin fire has a lot of like keto so deposits and they'll all be sharing that liquidity in the case of a 
mass liquidation and we've seen how mass liquidations go on chain not not so good to be honest um so yeah i'm kind of against the idea but we'll see for now they're also integrating uscc's um cctp directly into jupiter so hopefully that'll do pretty well um another thing on your i i do think kai kai is like a pretty good app especially in asia like asian people love their shopping rewards like apps like they go absolutely crazy over them and i wouldn't be surprised to see that growth continue to sustain in the coming months or years one other thing i would add on the the soul front is the uh backpack exchange i gotta shout out my lassies um the mad lads they're definitely like doing some interesting stuff in terms of like an nft project they have the you know the backpack and the x nfts and stuff like that so i think that's going to be interesting to watch play out and I'm very biased based on my bags, but that's like one of the few NFTs that I didn't sell for pennies on the dollar. So I'm holding that one into into the bull run and hoping for the best. Yeah, just one more thing on the Fire Dancer. Um, I think the full Fire Dancer client is coming out in H2 2024, and there's sort of like a earlier, smaller, probably not as performant version of that coming out in H1 2024. Um, but numbers that have been leaked or that were announced at Breakpoint were 1 million TPS. Uh, I would think a lot of people saw that number and went like, holy shit. But I think Anatoly clarified that that isn't like what it would look like in performance. That was like in an isolated environment and didn't take into account like the whole like end-to-end network stack. But it does feel like Fire Dancer will be like a significant transaction throughput. Um a significant increase in transaction throughput for Solana and could potentially enable like a new variety of use cases. Yeah, I'm interested to see how the Fire Dancer stuff actually influences projects that are alive today, like Gito Soul, like with their client that tries to extract some MEV. It's like, are they going to have to switch? Like, I don't know how that's actually going to look, but might cause some problems for some protocols that might be worth paying attention to. But I think that's a good place to end it. If you guys can't tell, we're a little bit low energy. It's a Friday. Mondays is usually when we're full on energy, and Friday is the the low energy day. So uh, everyone have a great weekend on this call, I guess, because people will be listening to this on a Wednesday. But nonetheless, thanks for coming on, guys. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode. We hope you really enjoyed it. Wanted to take one more moment to remind you guys about our upcoming 2024 Digital Asset Summit in London this March. Seats are limited, so be sure to hit the link in the description and use promo code 0x20 to save 20% off on your ticket. We'll see you in London. Be sure to hit us up if you plan on attending.